for people who are are at the beginning of an endeavor and you're about to do something and you got a lot of question marks or there are a lot of fill in the blanks so you don't have the answers to do the answers to don't be afraid to ask identify somebody who's doing it really really well and ask them more often than not they'll tell you what they do i've never had anybody who's really good at their craft whatever it is not be willing to share and so I think sometimes we're intimidated and we, we don't want to ask because, oh, they won't take any time for us. Yeah, they will. They will. They'll help you. And you might just end up with a tremendous person. Welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. I'm your host, Bailey Miles. The Building Excellence Podcast is all about sharing inspiring stories from some of the most successful athletes, coaches, business minds, and thought leaders to help you build excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. We hope this show provides you with tremendous value. And if you find the show impactful, please share with a friend and on social media, as well as subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. Thanks. Now let's get to the show and start building excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. For 25 years, Sherry Cole served as the head women's basketball coach at the University of Oklahoma, where she is the winningest coach in OU history. She led her program to three Final Fours, won six Big 12 regular season championships, and four Big 12 tournament championships, had 19 straight NCAA tournament appearances, and made nine Sweet 16 appearances. She also served as a coach for USA Basketball, and in 2016, Cole was inducted into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. She is a master motivator, an engaging speaker, a gifted writer, a keen observer of everyday life, and most importantly, her faith drives everything that she does. On the show, she shares everything from her own story growing up, following your curiosity, doing your job with excellence, being willing to ask, showing up, failure, daily diligence, and what makes your heart sing. She also just released a new book called Rooted to Rise, which is the Redwood Legacies of Life Anchoring People. It is a great read and a perfect Christmas gift for anyone as we get closer to Christmas. This is a great conversation with one of the all-time greatest coaches, so be sure to take notes and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. Today I have a special guest, Coach Sherry Cole. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Yeah, well, if you wouldn't mind, kind of give our listeners some background and context into you and what life was like growing up for you. Well, I grew up in a small town in southern Oklahoma, a little old field town called Hilton, and um, it was a great place to be from. It's the kind of place where the entire town knows what you're doing uh, before it could ever possibly get back to your parents. So you're really <laughs> raised by a, a village. Um, but I had, we had a wonderful school system and uh, I grew up with uh, my parents and uh, my mother's parents, my grandparents right there in town. My parents were divorced when I was little, but they both lived in the same small town, um, got along great, went to all my activities, were always present at birthdays and Christmas and all the holidays. And then my, my grandparents played a pivotal role, uh, in my brother and, and I's up, upbringing as well. Mm -hmm. So did your parents, did they play sports or how did you initially get involved into sports? No. And that's kind of funny. Uh, neither of them really, I, I mean, my dad was a high school athlete, played football mm -hmm. and baseball, uh, but no basketball players anywhere. And when I was in the fourth grade, um, Starla Cosper was the best player on the high school girls basketball team in Hilton. And I thought she was the coolest thing in the history of ever. <sighs> and when I grew up, I wanted to be like Starla Cosper. So um, her mother was a hairdresser in town and I would go with my granny. My granny went once a week to get her hair done. 
And Starla would come in and she'd be all sweaty and uh, straight from basketball practice and give something to her mom and take off out the door. And one day she popped in and said, um, would you like to go to basketball camp? And I was like, are you kidding me? I was in the fourth <laughs> grade. And um, she said, "There's they're having a day camp at the at a local town uh, just across the way, about 15, 20 minutes away. And um, I'd love to take you if you want to go. And I was like, are you kidding? This is the greatest thing ever. And so I went to basketball camp and uh, fell in love with the orange leather ball and the rest pretty much is history. Uh-huh. I love that. Yeah. I love that uh, she was willing to take you to basketball camp and, and kind of got you spurred into going to, to play basketball. But there was there another were... person, I believe, was it one of your teachers that had a pretty significant impact upon you at a young well, age? I... I had a bunch. Um, as if we stay in the basketball lane for just a second, yeah, I, went to, I went to Lindsay all-star camps, which if you grew up in Oklahoma and you were a girl playing basketball, you went to Lindsay all-star camp. It was just the thing that you did. Charles Haitley ran an amazing summer camp. And um, there I met a girl named Sharon Wingard who uh, had played basketball at Latta, which was a basketball Mecca just outside of Ada. And she was in college playing at Barton County Junior College at the time. And she sort of um, put her arm around my neck and said, um, let's go. Let's keep getting better. And she pushed me and became a fast friend. And from there, it it turned into uh, my brother's friends who were all really good players on the high school team. And there were just a series of people who um, also loved the sport, who were passionate about the game who were also kind enough and others focused enough to reach out to me and let me tag along and be a part of what they did. And so I think I fell in love as much with the game as I did with the connection of all the people who played it mm -hmm. and being a part of that really cool, um, just sort of um, uh, extended family of people whose life revolved around the game. Yeah, it's it's the people and, and a lot of that kind of ties into what you just your new book rooted to rise and the people that have the significance in your life. And so I think it's really important to touch on that because it's it's sometimes it's people maybe saying something to us or just coming alongside of us that really have a powerful impact on how we go about and maybe step into things that maybe sometimes we don't even know we have interest in. But because of those people around us, it's it's really important that, you know, they encourage us and we can do the same for other people. So I love to kind of hear that aspect of your story going back to your grandparents what are the the things maybe you look back from your grandparents because you talked about how they had a powerful impact on you that you admire most about them oh it's hard to pull just a thing or two sure. um they all had um sort of differentiating traits that were extraordinary in their own way um from my grandfather on my dad's side i got a, a passion for uh, writing and reading and speaking and thinking i think uh, my grandmother, his mother, was uh, a school teacher in a one-room schoolhouse. So um, I got a little bit of of that desire to teach and give back um, from her. Um, my granny was possibly the kindest, most generous uh, person I've ever met in my entire life. And so I was surrounded by um, that idea of generosity, of giving back, of of being a part of your community, of helping others. Her kitchen was the place where um, mashed potatoes were made for potluck Sundays, cookies were made for weddings and funerals. Uh, we visited the nursing home every Sunday, even though we didn't have a relative who was there. Mm. That's just kind of who my granny was. And my grandfather was a deputy sheriff and he passed away when I was a freshman in high school. 
Um, but I learned from him a lot about the importance of humor and how it can uh, affect situations and uh, make hard things a little bit easier and good things a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot in that from just learning from your grandparents. But there's a story I think I've, I've heard maybe you touched on before about, I think it was your granny, uh, maybe you were hanging clothes on a line and she was giving you a, a story about perspective of, of people going into a town. Can you touch on that or do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, granny told me all kinds of stories, um, but I think you're referring to um, uh, the one I, I written about where where mm-hmm. she said, if, if people come into a gas station and ask what kind of people are in this town, uh, the guy will say, tell me about the people where you came from. And uh, if they're really, really good, those are the people you're going to find. And if they were really, really bad, that's also probably the kind of people you'll find <laughs> because you end up finding what you're looking for. And mm. that's very much the way my grandparents lived. And so I feel like I just got so lucky um, being able to, you know, because of the family I was born into. And there's a lot to that, you know, uh, we're born Absolutely. with opportunity and advantages and, excuse me while we didn't have a lot of money uh we weren't able to do a lot of things from a a, a tangible uh, perspective uh we had all kinds of gifts and i had all kinds of i won a tremendous lottery because of the what the kind of people uh, in the family i was born into Mm -hmm. absolutely and that makes a big difference and obviously you got to uh, be a great example to so many people to currently what you're doing today, but also as a coach, because you, coaches can have such a powerful impact uh, upon the people that they lead. So talk a little bit about how, you know, you decided to, obviously you love basketball, but when did you start to realize that, Hey, this is what I really want to do. Maybe go to college and play. And actually I want to spend a lot of time working and, and getting better, actually having the ability to go on and play. Well, I was a weird kid in the fifth grade. <laughs> you know how you get um, those scholastic book uh, order forms when you're a little kid, they send them uh-huh. home with you and you can order some books, you know, and my friends are ordering comic books and, you know, mysteries. And I ordered, they call me coach by John Wooden. I, I'm not lying. The paperback book, I still have it. Matter of fact, I got him to autograph it That's years awesome. and years later, uh-huh. but I ordered that when I was in the fifth grade and I read it, I read every word of it. And Um, I knew early that I wanted to be a teacher and a coach because the most impactful people in my life beyond my family were my teachers and my coaches. My fifth grade coach was also my English teacher and she had a husband and a couple of kids. And I thought, man, when I grow up, I want to be like her Mm -hmm. and um, went to high school and had the same sort of experience. I I still want to teach. I want to coach because these people are so impactful And so I walked onto the campus at Oklahoma Christian in um, 1983 and said, I want to be a teacher and a coach. And they handed me a course catalog and said, all right, take the courses that will enable you to do that. And four years later, I walked off campus with the piece of paper that said I could do that. (laughs) And so I did. Um, So I never changed my mind, which is really odd. You know, my players Hmm. through the years probably changed their major 15 times, Um, but I never did. I just always knew that I had three major passions uh, reading, writing, and basketball. And the thread that ran through them all was teaching. And so it was just a sort of an obvious way to go and try to make a life. Mm-hmm. So would you say you're a naturally curious person? Extremely, yeah. extremely. Yeah. So even even when you're little, like the ability in fifth grade to buy a book, that, that book's back on my shelf too, because it's, <laughs> it's a great one. Um, but to have the ability to want to learn as much as you can about that, because maybe you have a decision that you made up or have a passion towards coaching because of the people and the examples that 
were kind of placed in front of you, um, I think is really important. And just that natural curiosity is something that, you know, sometimes it's natural and sometimes it can be developed, but it's just interesting to, to see how that plays a part in our evolution as people and as we grow. You know, I think I was, um, another really lucky thing to go back to that word is that I was always surrounded by people who encouraged me to follow that curiosity. You know, I think kids as a general uh, rule are all pretty curious. They want to know, um, you know, why the, why some leaves are red and some are yellow and uh, where the wind comes from. And it's just sort of a, for any of us who've raised kids that, that there's just question after question, after question, after question, because they want to know. And if you're fortunate enough to be in an environment where that is fostered, where um, people help you figure it out and maybe don't give you all the answers, but allow you to search and, and figure them out for yourselves, then that curiosity just continues to grow. Absolutely. Well, you, you touched on going to uh, Oklahoma Christian. How did you wind up at Oklahoma Christian? Well, Max Dobson recruited me. I was recruited um, by a lot of, of uh, small schools, a lot of junior colleges, um, but I, I really didn't want to go to a two-year school. I wanted a four-year experience, and um, Oklahoma Christian was a great school. I had grown up going to the Church of Christ, and I was very familiar with uh, Oklahoma Christian College at the time. It's a university now, but it was college at the time. And I didn't want to go too far away. I wanted to be in Oklahoma. And so it was just a perfect fit on all fronts. Mm -hmm. What would you say you learned most about your time as a player? Oh, wow. Um, big learning curve from yeah. six on six high school basketball to <laughs> five on five college basketball. Uh -huh. Thank goodness I was a forward, so I knew how to shoot. Yeah. Um, but there was this huge learning curve in the change of the game, obviously, but an even bigger learning curve for me was the fact that as a high school player, I always scored the most points. I was always the one that the opponent um, game planned around. Um, I was the one on the front page of the newspaper, the one they were talking about on the radio. I was the best player on our team. And I went to college. Um, I wasn't the best player on the team. <clears throat> I didn't score the most points. And five on five, I hardly ever even shot. I was point guard. Um, but I learned a lot about the importance of everybody doing their job and um, the value of all the different jobs that have to be done. Mm. And um, that I think probably the biggest lesson was that um, regardless of how hard you work, you won't always end up being the best. Boy, that was a, that was like one of those that was hard to get down your throat. You know, you're trying to swallow it because you know it's true. Yeah. But it was hard to get down my throat. Um, but a beautiful lesson to to be able to share with countless players moving forward because um, we want that to be the case. We want the hardest worker to be the best player. Mm -hmm. And it's just not always the way it is. Sometimes guys are really, really talented. And sometimes guys are not so talented, but they work hard enough to be very impactful and to be an important member of the team. But just because you work hard doesn't guarantee that you'll be the best. And I think coming to terms with that helped me to understand that the value of work is not for what you get out of it at the end, but for who you become while you're going through it. And mm -hmm. so that was a really invaluable lesson to be able to pass on, pass on down to players through the years. Yeah. Do you feel like you kind of knew that in the moment as you're going through it or being able to reflect back and have that perspective? Oh, I remember 
uh, realizing it at the time. And like yeah. I said, it was hard to swallow. Like I knew it was true. I knew it was true. I was watching it happen. I was watching myself put in the time and I was watching another player or several other players be way better than me. Mm. And it was a fact. And yet it didn't necessarily go down very well because I didn't want it to be true. I wanted to have more control than that. Yeah, absolutely. But I think uh, in that story too, there's something about like even knowing that maybe you're not going to be at that same talent level, uh, you understand like I'm going to put the work in no matter what, regardless, and, and give my best possible no matter what the outcome is because I'm going to try and give my best in every situation. And that filters into everything in life, really. But I think that's a powerful perspective to have and just always well, working your I think it was I think it was the realization that um, when you put in the work, when you put in the time, when you're dedicated, when you're committed to something, there's all kinds of rewards that come back. They're just different mm -hmm. than the ones that maybe you had set up on a shelf and aimed for at the beginning. And they're longer lasting than all those things, too. But I think that's um, sort of a perspective that you have to grow into. I, I don't know that I was able to completely comprehend that at the time. But as I grew older, I certainly knew that was true. Absolutely. Well, that's a, a great lesson. And did you automatically know? I mean, I think you already answered it, but you wanted to coach and, and teach uh, coming out of college. Yeah, I just didn't want to be a nomad. That's the only thing. I, I knew lots of coaches who lived two years there and two years here and across the country and up and down. And um, I never wanted that lifestyle. I had I had lived my entire life in one small town and I knew the benefits that came from that. I knew the rich friendships and relationships and the roots that I had. And I wanted to be able to raise a family with those same sorts of experiences. And so I wanted the profession, but I didn't necessarily want the lifestyle. Absolutely. Which is um, why I chose high school coaching and never even really thought about college coaching. It wasn't even at that time, um, especially being a women's college basketball coach, wasn't really something that people talked about a lot or you aspired toward because you just didn't know that many who were. It didn't have a platform yet. And so um, I wanted to be a high school coach and a teacher. And I loved doing that. I really did. I was so happy doing that. Um, I didn't really ever even think about chasing a college job. It just uh, worked out that the best one in the whole wide world landed <laughs> in my lap. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would say a lot of people don't, uh, aren't, uh, that doesn't happen quite a bit for a lot of people. And being able to stay in one spot for such a long period of time is, is extremely uh, rare, but what an opportunity. And I think there's, there's probably some power in it too. I'm sure you, you touched on luck, but the timing of it uh, is very important, but just doing your best job and, and enjoying the moment that you're in. I'm sure we'll talk about that later, but just being present. It sounded like no matter what, you knew you wanted to coach and teach and you were involved in it. You were doing it every day and you loved what you're doing. So you weren't trying to think about the next job. I, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but. No, absolutely. You know, when, when um, young coaches would ask me when I was coaching in Oklahoma, you know, uh, what can I do to get to the next level? I'm a high school coach. I want to get to the next level. What can I do? And I would always say the most important thing you can do is your job. Well, do whatever you're doing as well as you possibly can. Excellent sticks out. People sniff it out. They'll find you. I'm not saying just because you're a great high school coach, somebody's some major college athletic director is going to come plunk, pluck you out and put you in the corner office, but excellence gets noticed. And, uh, I think it's, incredibly important 
to pour your entire self into the job that you're doing rather than the one you think you want to get. Mm. There's no real wisdom in that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, how did you even wind up at Norman High School? Well, I worked for two years at Edmond Memorial uh, as an assistant coach. I was also an assistant volleyball coach. I drove a big yellow bus. I swept the floor. I taught six hours of senior English. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I really <laughs> did. I was like, oh, this is so great. Um, and then uh, I I got an opportunity to interview at Norman. Norman was in our conference, Norman and Edmond, uh, big rivals at the time, two of the largest schools in Class 6A in the state of Oklahoma. And um, Norman was just a, a few miles down the road. And I actually knew the boys basketball coach at Norman High School. This is kind of one of those things where, um, again, luck plays a role. He had uh, worked basketball camps at Oklahoma Christian College where I'd worked. And ironically, he was my husband's high school coach, which I didn't even know at the time. Uh, we put all that together and I uh, interviewed for the job at Norman and and ended up getting it. And I only got it, to be quite honest, because they weren't very good. I mean, it just wasn't a, you know, their football team was really good. Their boys basketball team was really good. Their volleyball team was really good. And girls basketball was just kind of something that they offered. And so I got an opportunity to go in and, and kind of build a sleeping giant. Yeah. Well, and, and talk about that because how do you go about doing that in a high school environment? Because in high school, you're not necessarily going out and being able to recruit and bring in the players that you want. You have to develop the people that are coming up through your program and then being able to change kind of the, the mindset, the environment into something that you're wanting to kind of grow and build. How do you go about doing that? And how did that evolve? Because you had some fantastic teams when you were there and it, it didn't start that way, which is a great point. Cause I, I love hearing the backstory. People can look at, at your story and see, Oh my gosh, you know, she was at Norman high and they were fantastic. Well, that wasn't the case at the start when you got there. Same thing with OU and it takes some time. And so that's why I really want to dive into how did you go about kind of changing the whole philosophy and the way things were working to build something that you wanted to build? Well, we were 11 and 12, our first year at my first year at Norman. And I remember the kids were so jacked. They thought it was fantastic. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like <laughs> we, we lost more games than we won, but it was more games than they'd ever won. And I was like, whoa, we got to change perspective. This is not good. This is, this is not our definition of success, but you know what you said is true at the high school level, you get what you get and you got them and you got to coach them. And uh, the fortunate thing about being at a school like Norman was that there were so many kids walking up and down the halls. I would walk down the hall and see these tall, incredible looking female athletes. And I would think, yes. And then I would go to the gym and they would not be there. Um, and so I, I thought the first thing I have to do is recruit inside my own school. Yeah. Like I got to make sure that these athletes, these talented athletes are playing basketball. And it didn't start with the sophomores, juniors, and seniors. It started with the seventh and eighth graders in the feeder schools around town. And I began recruiting literally before I ever had any idea that I would need to figure out how to do that. I just would go to um, mid-high games and uh, talk to the kids after they play, go in the locker room and tell them they did a great job and write them handwritten notes and encourage them and get them to come to basketball camp in the summer. And slowly but surely plant the passion for the sport of basketball in the hearts of these little kids. And um, then they began to just start to play and want to play and want to keep playing. I think the year that I left Norman and came to Oklahoma, we had 37 sophomores out for basketball. So of course you can't have 
37 yeah. people on any basketball team, much less a sophomore team. Uh, but that was a great problem to have because Absolutely. there were a lot of young players who just uh, were super excited about trying to earn the opportunity to play. And I think the lessons learned for all of them, whether they made that sophomore team or the JV team or ultimately the varsity team, uh, the lessons learned were impactful. And I think they mattered to them uh, once they left high school and went on to college or whatever they did with the rest of their lives. There's just something about that uh, dedication to a craft and a commitment to a team um, that helps you and helps you no matter what you do. Mm -hmm. Well, what made you go out and go to those, you know, middle school games and write notes and, and be active? Was that something you just naturally did or did you have people in front of you that kind of helped you have that perspective? You know, I don't, I don't think I, I really ever got that from anybody. I think mm -hmm. I, um, I just knew I needed players and I thought, all right, where can I find them? Find them. <laughs> and, and these guys don't want to play. They want to play volleyball. Okay. I'll go get the young ones who haven't decided uh -huh. they love volleyball yet. And so it just seemed sort of logical, but I've always been a big note writer. I think that's, uh, I think handwritten notes are incredibly impactful. And um, I felt like that was a big part of our quote unquote recruiting effort within our own school system Mm -hmm. uh, to try to get players to come out and play. But the once the the athletes were drawn there, I think, again, so incredibly fortunate. But when I went to Oklahoma Christian, Dan Hayes became the men's coach at Oklahoma Christian my freshman year there. So every day after practice, I would get a jug of water, a legal, pla legal pad, and sit down on the floor on the court and watch him practice and take notes. And I filled up recipe boxes full of little drill cards that I made watching them and everything had a date and a time and a, a value, a, an incremental value, a competitive component to it. And over the course of four years, I had a blueprint for how to build a program. I didn't know that I was going to need it so quickly or that it would come in so handy, but um, I followed that when I built Norman High School. And then when it came time to go to the University of Oklahoma, I had one that had already been test driven. And so, um, of course, there were things that I tweaked and, and adjusted a bit, but by and large, the blueprint was the same. There's a, an incremental way in which you get good at almost anything. And um, Dan Hayes provided a roadmap for what that looks like for a basketball team. And I followed it as best I could. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and two, just you having the perspective to just be a sponge and have that natural curiosity. So when you were in college, you were at those practices writing things down. Like you were a student, you didn't have to be there, but you wanted to be there because that's where you felt led to go and you wanted to be the best coach eventually and teacher eventually that you could be. So I think that's important to note too. But when you got to, to Norman, obviously you, you started to build a program, get players, you had 37 sophomores come out, great problem to have. And then you had some really good teams. But there's a story that I've heard that I think I really wanna to touch on because you've had some great teams. You go and you win the state championship. Uh, but I believe there was one thing that happened. You guys were driving home and, and I think you maybe had forgotten the ball, but it, it, it provided a powerful, powerful perspective um, that, you know, winning is not always everything, but it's that, that the people and the, the team that you have is really important. If you wouldn't mind, just kind of share that story just a little bit real quickly before we move on. Yeah, that's the actually the final story of my book, Rooted to Rise. And I chose to put it there because I think it kind of, wraps up maybe not all but so many of the things that we get to take with us um, after we're a part of a team and 
for that group of kids at Norman High School, we had been really, really good. The short story is we we were really, really good, undefeated, and lost in the semifinals of the state championship the previous year. When we came back in um, the year in which the story occurs, um, it, it was tension and um, um, sort of a maniacal, surgical approach to the game. The fun had been siphoned out of it. There was pressure, you know, we have to get this done. And it wasn't anything that um, typified that group of kids. That's not who they were. That's not what they were about. They were a super fun bunch that laughed a lot and jumped around and this didn't fit them, nor did it fit our quest. And so um, after breaking through the fear, which is uh, what creates that, um, we were able to just sort of become a team that reveled in the process and didn't think too much about what would happen at the end. We just took it day by day and enjoyed each other and and tried to play the game as well as it could possibly be played. And, and knew, we knew there were no guarantees of how things might end up. And um, that approach fueled us and allowed us to be maybe even better than we were. And that was a pretty good team. Uh, but we just played so free and so selflessly and with so much joy and when the championship game was over in Tulsa at the Maybe Center, all of the reporters in the locker room wanted to talk about revenge and getting the monkey off our back from what had happened there the year before. And my players were just like so far ahead of them in terms of uh, emotional extrapolation. Like they knew um, it wasn't about that. It was about the journey that we'd been on. And so we load up and head down the turnpike back toward Oklahoma city and get about 10 miles down the road and figure out we'd left the gold ball on the locker room floor. So we had to go back and get it. And yeah. it was just a, a perfect, um, just a perfect uh, frame for the lessons that we learned and the way those kids approach that season. And I've always said that, that they get to take with them and they have been able to take with them throughout their lives, a perspective that a lot of people don't have because they'll now they'll always know what it feels like to be about something that's right, that's that's pure and and about the right reasons. And um, while they might not always be able to fix it when it's not right, they'll at least itch enough to be able to try. And I think that's a gift. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a powerful story. Well, you had some great teams at Norman, and then obviously the OU job opens up, and you know obviously the rest is history. But talk a little bit about that. How did that come to fruition? And you go from high school into college. And even OU, because OU was not this powerful, you know, women's basketball program that it that you helped uh, bring it into. It was not a juggernaut. No, it was yeah. not. Um, no, it's a funny story. I had a, a three and a half year old son and was eight months pregnant with my daughter and into my sweat box of an office at Norman High School on the north end of the gym came this group of men from the community. And they said, um, we think you ought to apply for that Oklahoma job. And I said, are you drunk? Like, <laughs> like seriously, I, this, this makes no sense whatsoever. I have no college coaching experience. I have a toddler. And in case you can't tell, I'm about to have a, another child any moment now. So I, you're crazy. And they're like, no, 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 no. We think you should apply. And um, they came back a, a, about a week later and said, no, we're serious about this. We think you should apply what in the world? So I made a call to Marita Hines, who was associate athletic director, senior women's administrator in Oklahoma. And she said, 
there's not a requirement for previous collegiate coaching experience because I was like, if it is, save me the time. I don't need to do a dress, dress rehearsal here. I'm about to have another baby. I love my job. I love my life. Uh, if it's out of the question, just tell me and I, I won't waste anybody's time. And she said, no, we'll entertain all comers. So um, I went through the process of trying to figure out, first of all, if I thought I could do it. And then second of all, if I thought I wanted to. And at the end of that process, I thought, I think I can and I think I'd like to try. And so I got an interview and uh, the rest is pretty much history. Um, it was a short trip across town, yeah. but it was a big jump and um, an amazing, amazing chance um, that a lot of people don't get. And I realized that. And people ask me, you know, like, like how, do you, how does that happen? Well, I was in the right place, obviously. Norman, where this this group of people who were deciding who was going to be the next coach had watched us fill our gyms and win championships on a regular basis, just on the other side of main street. Um, it was the right time. It was right before the explosion of women's basketball salaries weren't astronomical. Um, very few games were televised. It had not yet erupted into the phenomenon that it is today. So it was right on the cusp. And so I was in the right place at the right time, but I was also doing the right things. And I think that part's important. Um, I was taking care of what I thought was the most important job in the whole wide world. And that's the one I had. And so I took that same sort of focus and same sort of passion and commitment with me to my new spot at the Lloyd Noble Center just across town. Yeah. Were you, when you got there, was it something that, was it kind of daunting changing or were you pretty confident in your ability to go ahead and, and do what you did at Norman, but now do it at the division one level at OU? Practice was great. I couldn't wait to get to the court every day because that was just the same. The uh -huh. court, the goals, the balls, nothing changed. I knew exactly what I was doing there. The rest of it, woo, um, different deal <laughs> entirely. Yeah. I've often said that when I, when we took over, it was like, it was like finding a, like you buy a farm, you know, and you're like, oh, this is a great farm. And, oh, there's a truck out there. This is awesome. I can fix that truck up and it can be my farm truck. And so you go out and you start working on it. And you're like, needs new tires. I can do that. And needs new paint job. I can do that. And then you open the hood and there's no engine inside. Yeah. That's what it was like to go into the office. There were no recruiting files. There were none. They, they were not actively recruiting anyone. There was nothing in terms of this is how it's been done that you could follow sort of a pattern. There was nothing. It was just emptiness. And in some ways, you know, that was, as I look back now, was really good. At the time, it was like, I don't know what to do. And, um, you know, again, uh, people arrive in, in maybe positions you might anticipate or expect, and maybe some you don't. The first phone call I made uh, when I got the job, well, the first phone call was probably after family was to Gino Ariema because he had been a, a good friend and he played an, an integral role in, in just helping my psyche and my mindset before I went through that um, uh, group interview process. But the second phone call I made was to Roy Williams at the University of Kansas. He, I had loved watching his teams play. He was... Um, I just thought they played the right way. We had run their secondary break at Norman High School. I had studied them devoutly. I knew Joe Holiday, who was an Oklahoma guy who worked with Coach Williams there. 
And so I called Joe and said, Hey, I just want to come up and talk to coach Williams about how to run a college program. Like I don't, I don't need any wrinkles to secondary break. I don't, I don't need any practice drills. I don't need to watch any film. I just want to know how to run a program. I want to know how to set up a shop. I've got three coaches. I've never had three assistant coaches. What are they supposed to do? I don't even know what their jobs are. And so Joe said, well, I don't know, coach. I'll, I'll ask and see. And so he asked Roy and Roy said, I really don't have time, but I, in the summer, I go to every gym of my basketball camp. And I think there were 16 gyms in use that in that time at Lawrence. And he said, I visit everyone every day so I can say hi to all the kids. And if she wants to come and just follow me around while I do that, she can ask questions and I'll talk to her. So I got in the car and I drove to Lawrence, Kansas and uh, went to Fog Allen Fieldhouse, my first time ever, and uh, met coach. And we went and got in his car and drove to a gym and I had a legal pad and asked him questions and literally he would talk all the way to the gym door. He would walk in, I would hang out in the doorway. He would go in and become Roy Williams in the gym. Kids would go crazy, He'd walk around, talk to him, do his thing for about 15 minutes, walk back out. I'd start the questions again, all the way to the car. We did it all day long. We stopped at Wendy's for lunch and got a bacon cheeseburger, each one of us. And we became fast friends. At the end of the day, he said, um, he was leaving for the evening. He said, coach, you can have anything you want. There's a file cabinet back there with every set we've ever run at a secondary break. Um, there's drills over here and, and reams of film. You can watch anything you want. And I said, I appreciate that so much. And maybe one day I'll come back and do that. But that's not what I came for today. You've taught me how to set up a program and I'm for, I'll be forever indebted to you. And I set up my program like Roy Williams ran his. And uh, he and I are, are still uh, dear, dear friends to this day. And we laugh a lot about that bacon cheeseburger we shared at Wendy's. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I think the best part of that story to me is that for people who are are at the beginning of an endeavor and you're about to do something and you got a lot of question marks or there are a lot of fill in the blanks. So you don't have the answers to do the answers to don't be afraid to ask identify somebody who's doing it really, really well and ask them more often than not, they'll tell you what they do. I've never had anybody who's really good at their craft, whatever it is, not be willing to share. And so I think sometimes we're intimidated and we we don't want to ask because, oh, they won't take any time for us. Yeah, they will. They will. They'll help you. And you might just end up with a tremendous personal friend. Absolutely. That's great advice. And just being willing to ask and learn from people that you admire for not just what they do, but also who they are, I think is really important too, right? Yeah. So you got to learn a lot from Coach Williams there on that that trip, but then you get to go down and now you're back in reality and you're actually having to build the program. And I know you've touched on, you've actually taught some classes about kind of what makes a great team, what, what makes a great program. What did it look like from day one and how did you go about trying to establish and build what makes a great team? Well, it started with continued acts of sincerity. We just tried to say what we were going to do and then do it so that people could count on us. It might be going to class. It might be how we run out of the tunnel onto the floor. It uh, might be how we practice. It, it was just continued acts of sincerity. And after a while, perspective changed. It had to change within first before it could change without. And um, that's an arduous climb. If you if you take your focus off of what's really important, it can absolutely eat you alive. I had a, a former player uh, text me just a few days ago and she's a new head coach. And she said, um, 
we're owing for the struggle is real. That's what the text message said. And I sent back private victories precede public ones. It's you have to be your own cheerleader for a while. You know, when you're making progress, you know what a win is. It's not always the total points on the scoreboard that the rest of the world sees. It's did you get through a good practice? My first year at Oklahoma, it was late January uh, before we ever had a practice that I was really proud of. And I remember writing it down and saying, this is a big day because we went two hours with complete immersion and absorption and uh, freedom and curiosity. And it was it was two hours beautifully spent. And this is how we have to do it every day. But you have to do it once before you can do it over and over. And so that was a mark for us. They didn't write about it in the newspaper. It wasn't up on the marquee anywhere, but it was a big victory for us. And so it's just a series of those. We used to say one day at a time in a row. Uh, you just do it over and over and over and over again. And after a while, it accumulates and you've got something that you're pretty proud of. Mm -hmm. And how important is like staying the course and, and knowing you're doing the right thing, but continuing to stay the course and not let maybe outside uh, perspectives or thoughts kind of weigh you down? Oh, I think it was Woody Allen who said half of life is showing up. You you just have to, you have to go there every day. And the writing world is so similar. That's when people say, you know, oh, what a strange jump from the sidelines coaching to being a writer. There are a lot of similarities. You wake up every day and you put your butt in the chair and you write. Yeah. And some days it's good and some days it's not. And some days you just throw it all in the trash, but you show up. And, and that I learned how to do that as a player and then as a coach. Um, I think ferreting out the outside noise is the harder part of it all, especially today. It wasn't that hard then. And I say that sort of tongue in cheek, but nobody really cared. You know, like who was paying attention? Nobody was watching. We were awful, but who, who really cared? And that was a blessing at the time. You know, mm -hmm. uh, we were stomping our feet and banging our fists, but it was a little bit of a blessing to have the privacy and the safety of that. Uh, little cocoon where we could build and grow. Uh, it's not that way anymore. It doesn't matter. I mean, the sport of women's basketball has exploded, but it that is irrelevant. Uh, the world of social media puts everyone on blast all the time. And so I think it's really hard to get good. I I, I struggled for uh, years in, in practices at Oklahoma in terms of I wanted fans to be able to come. I thought it was a cool thing to be able to open your gym to your fan base to come in and watch you practice. But at the same time, the other part of me ached for a safe place for my athletes to fail. It, it's, you know, you need to just be able to not be good for a while because that's how you end up getting really good. And if you're worried about how you look, you never can do that. And so I think in the world at large right now, beginners, regardless of the field of endeavor, um, have an uphill climb because they're always on blast. You, you, you don't really have any space to try to become. And mm -hmm. so you have to be tough enough to, to deal with being ugly and to shutting off the noise and um, focusing on the things that are important to you. But it takes a great deal of discipline to do that. Yes, absolutely. And I think you brought up a great point about failure, having a, a place where they can fail and not necessarily just be because everyone fails. But sometimes when we have that failure and people are criticizing that it makes people not want to fail again. And in order for us to grow as people, we are going to fail. And we have to have that perspective that when we fail, we'll get back up, we'll learn from what, what happened and then keep going. And we might fail again, but we're going to keep going. 
So I think some people have termed, you know, you're never failing because you're always just getting back up and going. But at the same time, failure and having a place to be able to do that, having people around you uh, that are authentic with you and true and telling you truth, but also having some grace to it is really important. So t- you talked a little bit about starting to build your cult or culture, which I know I think I've heard you talk about, you know, the word culture often gets misused a lot. So, but you were able to establish a great program. What did it take? Because you went to a lot of final fours, had a lot of great teams. What did it take to sustain excellence and to sustain success in that environment, in your opinion? Well, um, one of the things that's, that's, um, great about having success is then there are footprints and other people can follow them. And so you're not having to take the machete and clear out the road. You can just follow the one that's been laid before you. And, and so I think, uh, the lion's share of the credit of the culture that was passed down for our teams belongs to the players, the the seniors who passed it on to the juniors who then became seniors and passed it on to the incoming. There's a way that we choose to live together and behave together. These are our expectations. And then they become embedded in those who follow and you just pass it on. So there's a, a very positive chain that can get created there. But I think the key component um, for any leader is uh, to be attentive to the moment. If you take your eye off the ball, it, it's not going to just continue to roll the way you want it to. You have to be attentive to little things as they start to go askew. Um, you have to have your pulse on changes, not only within your team, but within the game and within the world at large. And um, it's just sort of a daily diligence, which isn't very sexy. You know, yeah. it's not. It's not super fun or super creative. It's sort of boring, but every day you have to wake up and make sure that everything is still being pushed in the appropriate direction to create the kind of product that you can be proud of. Mm-hmm. And I love the term you use daily diligence because it's just like you talked about writing. It's every day waking up and, and doing it and sticking to the process. Just like when you're coaching, it's it's being focused on where you're going, but also having that daily diligence because sometimes things definitely get monotonous and mundane, but it's going over and over again to perfect and make sure you're attentive in the moment and get better each day. So I love that. And that's a great perspective. We'll talk a little bit about what you're doing now because you transitioned out of coaching and now you're writing, you're speaking. Talk a little bit about what you're, what you're doing in your new book. Well, I'm really doing the same thing that I've done my entire career. It's just in a different lane. I mean, um, what do coaches do? They tell stories all day long. They tell stories before practice. They tell stories during practice. They tell stories at halftime. They tell stories to the Rotary Club. They tell stories to the Booster Club. Um, They tell stories to the media. This is what we do. We tell stories all day long. And uh, I'm still doing that. I'm just doing them in a different way. Um, I love to speak, enjoyed public speaking as a coach. I was one of, you know, that's, you have to do a lot of that as a major college coach. And it never bothered me. As a matter of fact, I actually enjoyed it. I got a lot of juice from it. Um, so it was a part of the job that I, I knew I could uh, continue to do after I no longer had the job. It, it was a joy and um, and something that, that doesn't take an, a whole lot of extra time for me, unfortunately, in that regard. But um, the writing piece was something that I always knew that I wanted to do. During COVID, I um, picked up this Moses basket that was in the floor of my study here at home. And it was just filled with all kinds of loose leaf paper and some legal pads and just random stuff that I had tossed in over almost 30 years. And I started going through it during the COVID COVID lockdown where 
don't leave your house, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the closets have been cleaned. So what am I going to do now? I'm going to go through the most <laughs> basket. And so um, I began to look through all the the pieces and I had like six or seven completed pieces that I had never, stories that I had never done anything with. And I thought, hmm, kind of put them in a pile. And then I began to read just pieces of paragraphs and um, uh, partial journal entries. I had one sentence about Whitney Hand. I had written one sentence about Whitney Hand probably in the wee hours of the morning on the night after she tore her ACL for the final time. Um, and I, it began to kind of open up this whole drawer cabinet full of memories about Wit and her career. And I began to write about that. And I, I actually wrote uh, an essay called An Athlete's Ache that was published at Sooner Sports um, during those first few days and remembered or re-realized, I guess, how much joy I got from writing, how much clarity it gave me. For my entire life, writing has been how I figure out what I think. Uh, I start to write and it's ugly and mushy and and has problems all over the place. And as I think my way through it, not only does the writing get better, but it gets better because the thoughts are clearer. And uh, I had done that during COVID. It helped me sort of process all the craziness that was going on in the world. And I realized that not only was I thinking clearer, but my heart was singing. Mm. It was a thing that I just found such joy in doing. And so I began to write in those shutdown days. And before you knew it, I had about 17 or 18 completed essays. And I thought, I don't know what to do with these. I don't even know what they are, but they might be a thing. I don't know. Yeah. And so I just kept writing. And then when I stepped away from coaching in the spring, I just sat down and uh, wrote about eight or 10 more. And then I thought, all right, I have a little over 30. This might be a thing. I don't know. I'm going to share it with somebody and see if it is. And the thing about writing is uh, it's like walking around naked. I mean, sharing it with somebody is like, yeah. you know, it's, it's your heart out there uh, by itself. And so every single time I would share it with a person, I would just sort of have this, you know, period of time where I'm sweating profusely and can't breathe because mm -hmm it's harrowing. Um, but I gave it to a, a literary agent who, uh, read it while she was on vacation and, uh, called me back and said, it's beautiful. I love it. It's definitely a thing. And, um, it sort of started there and, um, the publishing process took an entire year. It's a whole different thing <laughs> that I'm uh, not nearly as good at as I am the writing. <laughs> um, it's hard. And, and there were just so many unknowns, but I've learned a lot. And uh, I feel, again, incredibly fortunate to be in a position where I could spend the time that I've spent doing this. And um, I feel I feel like I'm in my happy lane. I really do. Yeah. Well, go on, touch on that too. How important is it to follow um, what makes your heart sing? Well, I used to have a sign uh, or a little printed sign inside of an 11 by 14 frame on the desk right inside my office at Oklahoma. So when a player came in, she walked past it, she had to see what makes your heart sing. And when she left, she had to see what makes your heart sing. It sat there by the entrance for years. And it served as a prompt for kids who were trying to figure out what they want to be when they grow up. Uh, who are they once basketball is over and they go out into the big wide world. And I would always start with that question, not what do you want to major in, not what do you want your career to be, what, but what makes your heart sing? And I felt like that 
if they could unpack that, we could drop some breadcrumbs and get to a place where they would want to live. And, and so, um, to me, what makes your heart sing is, is what's that thing that you can do and work hard at it. I mean, diligently sweating blood at it for hours and then feel like you don't even need to rest. That's how, you know. And when I write, that's how I feel. When I played basketball, when I went in the gym by myself with a ball, that's how I felt. Work, 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 work. But I was never really tired because I had such a passion for what I did. So um, the opportunity to do that now, it's, I feel so blessed. Yeah. Couldn't sum up any better than that. But real quickly as we wind down, uh, you know, there's two questions I want to ask you about. How important is your faith and how has it guided you? And how important is it being a, a mother and a wife? <laughs> Those are two really big questions. I know, I know. We don't have enough time for that. But... Down. Yeah. <laughs> well, faith is the backbone of every single thing that um, I have and do and am in this world. I don't. I don't know how people get by without it. I don't understand um, because it's it's true north for me. It's um, the place where I find peace. It's where I go when things are good, where I go when things are bad. It's the one constant, the never-changing part in this ever-changing world. Um, wife and mother, um, boy, there are so many ways to do it and do it well. Um, I don't know that I've done it well, but I've done it my way in, in the way that's most authentic to me. You know, um, my kids learned to fall asleep on a basketball court while people were playing and the buzzer was sounding when they were two and three years old. Um, they've been on airplanes. I might've put Mountain Dew in their bottle on occasion. I don't know, <laughs> maybe. Um, they, they've had these crazy, atypical, wonderful, marvelous lives because they were a part of my career. Coaching is the kind of profession that consumes you. And um, you can't just kind of do it and put your heart over here on a shelf and then come back and deal with the heart and all that it goes with you. And yeah. so the only way for me to make that work was to make my children and my husband a part of what I did. And so um, it worked for us. You know, uh, we have family dinners now at the dining room table that never, ever had any food placed on it the entire time I was a basketball coach. Uh, it was just a different way of life. And that's okay. Um, my kids had the world's longest pickup line for school. You know how that line of people that can pick yeah. Colton up at school well, if Jan couldn't do it, Guy could. If Guy couldn't do it, Tara could. If Tara couldn't do it, Ryan could. It's just yeah. this long list of people. And so they were raised knowing that so many people cared about them and loved them and would be there for them. So there were just added benefits everywhere. And I think maybe the, I guess to sum it all up, it would be uh, you have to, when you are the truest version of yourself, you probably do the best job at the wife and mother thing. And so um, if I was giving advice to anyone, it would be just be who you are. Yeah, I love that. Well, we got a little fire round, so I'll say a sentence and you can finish with a word or sentence, however you feel led. You can do anything if. You can do anything if you're willing to uh, make the trade-off. I got to tell you, though, that um, I have a little bit of problem with the you can do anything thing Mm -hmm. because I don't think people can do anything. Like I could practice a thousand hours a day and never ever dance like Beyonce. It's not happening. Yeah. And if you've ever heard anybody that's tone deaf, try to sing, they can practice all they want, but if they can't hear it, it's just not going to happen. Not going to happen. Yeah. So 
it we can do lots of things mm -hmm. but i'm not sure we can all do anything mm -hmm. uh, whatever we do try to do there's a trade-off and we have to embrace the price that's for sure yes i love that wisdom is wisdom is paying attention and leaving judgment behind favorite vacation spot italy italy <laughs> very good one intentionality means um intentionality means you're choosing your own happiness mm -hmm. favorite book besides your own <laughs> oh anything by ann patchett anna quinlan or ann lamott and i'm also a big fan of pat conroy i cannot choose just one <laughs> okay awesome it all comes down to choices Awesome. We're done with the fire round. The final two questions I have for you. Is there a best piece of advice you've ever received and what is it? Um, probably what Winston Churchill said and then Jimmy Balvano and then my granny and every basketball coach I ever had. Never give up. Don't ever give up. Mm, awesome. Uh, this podcast is called Building Excellence. What does building excellence mean to you? Well, you know, I like the way you phrase that, building excellence, because it, it, inherent in that phrase is the fact that it's never done. Mm -hmm. You know, building excellence is an all the time thing. I think it means that every day you get up and you try to reach the bar and every day the bar moves just a little bit beyond your reach. And the next day you try again. I just think it's an all the time thing. Yes, absolutely. Well, coach Cole, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing your story and a lot of the lessons you learned. Uh, you, know, you talked a little bit about your book, but what's the best place people can can buy your book, you know, listen to a lot of the things you have, you have a lot of uh, the things you've spoken on on your website as well. And then also too, you have a blog that you do. What's the best way to find all that stuff? Yeah, you can find my blog at sherrycole.com. It's called A Way of Life and a new one goes up every Tuesday at 10 a.m. It's hard to believe that there's close to 70 entries there now because I've done it mm -hmm. for a year and several months. Um, it's been a great practice to just have to get something out every week uh, to reach finality because anybody who has written knows that most of writing is rewriting and it can go on forever. <laughs> and so it's nice to, to know that there's a 10 o'clock where you have to just say, I'm posting this and push send uh -huh. so that there's sort of a, an end mark for a bit. Um, but I've had a blast doing that and it's a free subscription. And with a subscription, it comes straight to your email box. And then uh, once a month, there's a, a newsletter that comes as an added value. So that's been really fun. And I've uh, created a really just interesting network of people uh, who subscribe to that. So that's been great. Um, the book Rooted to Rise, information about it can be found on my website. It can be purchased at Amazon. It can be purchased on Barnes and Noble uh, online. And then lots of bookstores in Oklahoma from the bookseller in Ardmore, which is in Carter County, where I'm from to Magic City, which is in Tulsa, uh, Best of Books in Edmond, Full Circle, Commonplace, uh, Cayman's Occasions, uh, lots of places in and uh, around Oklahoma City. And that was important for me to put it in local brick and mortar. Mm -hmm. That's another lesson I learned from my grandparents uh, to give back to the community where you live. And so um, the book is there and available and obviously makes a great Christmas present. But my hope is that uh, when people read the book, that obviously it makes them think and feel that's that's the reason why i write but my hope is that it sits in them <clears throat> excuse me and that after they're finished and they've turned the final page they'll think about 
the people who have impacted their life and um, maybe even act on those thoughts and reach out and say thank you and express gratitude mm-hmm. because we all become who we are because of the people in our lives. Yep. I love it. So definitely pick up a book, check out the blog, check out the website. Coach Cole, thank you so much again for coming on. Thank you. It was fun. I appreciate you. Great questions. Hey everyone, it's Bailey Miles. Thanks again so much for tuning in. We hope you found value in the show. And if you enjoyed it, we would really appreciate you sharing the show with a friend, subscribing on Apple or Spotify podcast, writing a quick review, or leaving a five-star rating. When you do that, it really helps get the message out and allows more people to hear these stories and help them build excellence in their life, leadership, and legacy. If you have any questions, thoughts, or ideas, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email. It's bailey at baileymiles.com. Follow us on social. We're on all the different social platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Or check out our website at baileymiles.com. Once again, I'd love to hear from you, so definitely do that. And then thanks again for joining me on this journey. And remember, life begins at the end of your comfort zone.